to Week in Review, where we recap events and issues pertinent to Central Illinois. I'm WMBD Radio News Director Will Stevenson. History was made in Congress this week and not necessarily in a good way. U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy was removed from that role after Congressman Matt Gates of Florida filed a motion to vacate the seat. This after a government shutdown was averted, but not to the liking of members of the House Freedom Caucus. While it's been a possibility throughout history, it's only the first time a House Speaker has been removed in such a way. WMBD's T.J. Carson talked about all the twists and turns with Bradley University Assistant Political Science Professor Megan Remmel. There's actually a theory in political science and congressional research that kind of predicts what was going to happen yesterday. So I was expecting him to lose that speakership vote. Um, And it was going to be tight simply because the margins in the House of Representatives between the Democrats and the Republicans is really tight right now. So it's not surprising to me that it was only a six vote difference. Um, But there's this, this kind of theory in political science called conditional party government. And all that basically means is that when a political party is in the majority uh, in the majority party, so the Republicans in this case, when they're in the majority and everybody in the, the what we call a caucus, so all of the Republicans group together, when they're all thinking pretty similarly about policy and about how to behave and sort of what the expectations are, they give their leadership a lot of power because they want the leadership to basically be able to force the sort of scragglers to behave the way the rest of the party is behaving. When the party is kind of internally divided, which is pretty much what the Republicans in the House look like right now, when they're internally divided, they actually want a weaker speaker because they don't want to be forced into doing things. And that's kind of one of the tools that the speaker has is sort of rewards and punishments. And so they want a weaker speaker because they don't want to be forced to do things that they don't want to do. So back in January, when we were having all these repeated votes about the speakership, because the the Republican Party in the House is so internally fractured and divided right now. They weakened Kevin McCarthy just from the start. All the things he had to agree to just to be elected Speaker of the House made him a really weak speaker to begin with. Um, and so it's in no way surprising that given all how weak he was as a speaker to begin with, that it was going to be pretty difficult for him to maintain that for an extended period of time. So once Matt Gates filed this, this motion to um, remove Kevin McCarthy from the speakership, you went, yeah, there's probably enough Republicans to, to kick him out. Did you expect uh, McCarthy to last the entire two years as speaker, uh, considering what you just uh, mentioned? Um, so I think part of that has to do with who a speaker of the House is. And so obviously I don't know about his personality and I don't know about kind of the internal quirks that all the members of Congress are going to know. But there has been all this discussion that, especially from these 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 eight Republicans and uh, the Democrats, that they don't find him trustworthy, that they don't think that he keeps his promises, that they don't feel like he's negotiating in good faith. And so if that was sort of the mentality going in, then it shouldn't be surprising that he loses his speakership this quickly. Whereas if it were a different speaker who had maybe a different reputation, maybe even given how fractured the, the whole party dynamic is in the House, they might be able to hold on for longer. So I think part of it just has to be a quirk of who that person is and Given that he wasn't Speaker of the House, he didn't have quite such a national profile. It's harder to know who Kevin McCarthy was, and he didn't really have a long enough time to really show us either. The word that was thrown around a lot yesterday with this vote was historic. What makes the actions yesterday and the vote and the removal of uh, McCarthy as Speaker historic? So it's 
historic in some ways and his, not historic in others. So in the ways that it's not historic, there have been speakers before whose caucuses have gotten really mad at them and have made moves to try to oust them, who have kind of worked behind the scenes, who have even tried to bring these motions to kick uh, a speaker out of their speakership. But none of them has ever succeeded before. That's where it becomes historic. So the, the fact that there's just been this internal struggle within the Republican caucus and that they were unhappy with their speaker, that's not in and of itself unique. It's the fact that there was actually a vote and it was a successful vote. So it was the first time we have removed a speaker from office. So the, the kind of ingredients that led to this removal aren't necessarily unique, but the fact that it actually turned in to removing somebody from the speakership, that's the historic part. Does this make the Republican Party weaker as a whole at the moment? Yeah. So I think one of the things, even if you don't really understand the dynamics of what's happening in there, if you're an outsider just looking at Congress right now and you look at the fact that all the Democrats voted together and the Republicans are fighting with each other, um, Kevin McCarthy said some pretty feisty things during a press conference yesterday evening about members of his own party. Um, I think it, it definitely makes it more public to all of us kind of regular people that the Republicans are really struggling as a party right now, which for the Republicans is really unfortunate because right now they've got really high um, approval ratings on the way people think that they would handle the economy, for instance. I think it's the highest it's been since like 1991, something like that. Um, so the Republicans have some things that should set them up to do well in 2024, but the fact that this is so public and it's so in the news and it's so it's easy to understand at least that these people aren't getting along, um, that it hurts the Republicans just from like a, a PR, a public relations perspective, a marketing perspective. And if they can't find a way to kind of rally the troops and at least appear outwardly unified, that is not going to help their case when it comes to both House and Senate elections and then the presidential election next year. Do you see Democrats taking advantage of the situation then? I mean, what ends up happening is a both parties are going to try to spin things. And so it just kind of depends on how successfully they spin and how likely you are to believe one party spin over the other. So what you're hearing right now is obviously the Democrats all unanimously voted against him, which was what was going to happen. There's no way they were going to support a, um, a Speaker of the House who's a, 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 of the other party. The, the, the idea that the Democrats were ever going to do that was odd and unlikely, especially given the animosity that a lot of the Democrats had towards Kevin McCarthy in particular. So they're going to spin this as the Republicans are in chaos. They can't even figure out how to agree with themselves, let alone cooperate with the Senate, let alone cooperate with the president. They're um, not somebody who should be trusted with governing. Okay. If you believe that, then that's a convincing argument. Like if you're already favorable to the Democrats, that's going to sound convincing. The Republicans are already trying to spin this as though it's the Democrats who actually removed Kevin McCarthy, because to be fair, most of those votes were from Democrats. Now, there were eight from Republicans, but most of those votes were from Democrats. So it's easy, again, if you don't understand the kind of intricacies of what's been going on here to say, yeah, the Democrats did this. This is the Democrats fault that, that Congress, that the House in particular, isn't meeting for the next week. And we're wasting time trying to get a new federal budget in place, um, even though they were never going to vote for Kevin McCarthy in the first place. Um, so really, it's actually these eight Republicans that have really sowed this chaos. But it's really easy to still be like, yeah, but it was only eight of us. It was all of the Democrats. And so if you already don't really like the Democratic Party, that's been sounds more feasible. So it's really just going to depend on how successfully they spin things and who you're more likely to believe. 
What do you see as the short-term and long-term effects of what happened on uh, Tuesday? Um, obviously, the short-term effects right now is that the House of Representatives isn't in session. They gaveled into recess yesterday. Um, the kind of ideas that they're supposed to sort of have these candidates, so so far at least two members of the House GOP have declared that they want to be Speaker of the House. Um, they will basically be campaigning for other Republicans to try to win their vote. Um, and I'm assuming they would love to avoid what happened in January with 15 rounds of voting again, because that's just going to make that argument that the Republican Party's in chaos more convincing. Um, so they're supposed to basically spend the next week sort of campaigning and then vote, begin voting on a new speaker next Wednesday. So right now, the House of Representatives just isn't in session. And this last weekend, we just got that 45-day continuing resolution to keep the budget, uh, the, the federal government uh, functioning by kind of continuing prior spending levels. So we're wasting a week, essentially, just on trying to get a new speaker into place, which, given that we only had six weeks to begin with, is a lot of time. So from a short-term perspective, this just doesn't help the prospects for um, the, the federal budget negotiation process. Long-term pro uh, prospects, obviously, the Republicans are going to need to find a way to look unified. They may not actually be unified, but they're going to have to find a way to look unified because this is just not helping their case for trying to say that we're the best party to solve crime, we're the best party to address immigration, we're the best party to help with inflation, when you guys can't even agree amongst yourselves. So they need to figure out a way to present a unified front, particularly before the primaries, the presidential primaries even start. Because right now, if there's so much infighting, and of course the Republican presidential candidates are going to be asked about this stuff, and so they're going to end up having to take sides, um, and that that's just going to make the party look more fractured. So they need to figure out a way to present a unified front as quickly as possible. On the other side, the Democrats would like the Republicans to be a little chaotic for a while because it does help their prospects. So um, it's just, to me, it's largely going to depend on how well the Republicans can find their way back out of this. And then I guess a uh, final question to wrap up here. Uh, if you had to, if, from what you're seeing right now, who do you think ends up as speaker? Um, so there's two candidates so far. Um, one is named Steve Scalise. The other one is a guy named Jim Jordan. Um, Jim Jordan is both surprising and not surprising that he's thrown in his hat in the ring. He's a member from Ohio. He is uh, conservative. He's also one of the more kind of combative members. He um, is actually chair of the, the House Judiciary Committee, which is a pretty powerful position, and he would have to give that up to be Speaker of the House. Um, and he's repeatedly said throughout the years that he has no interest in being Speaker of the House. So it's it, a little surprising that he threw his hat into the ring, given that he said that before, but his profile is also higher than a lot of all uh, of other members of Congress, and so he might be taking advantage of that. Steve Scalise is currently the majority leader, which is one step below the Speaker of the House. Um, and so it, it kind of makes sense that he would want to throw his hat into the ring because, like, this is the sort of next step in his job progression. So he's obviously got a ton of uh, experience having been in the Republican Party leadership, um, and he doesn't have necessarily baggage by being attached to Kevin McCarthy because Steve Scalise has been in leadership for years. Um, so it's not like he's just only there because Kevin McCarthy was Speaker of the House. Um, so Steve Scalise is probably the more popular candidate in the GOP um, caucus right now, in the Republican caucus in the House, but obviously don't know what's going to develop over the next week, don't know if any other people are going to declare themselves. Um, but if I had to take a guess right now, I'd say I'd say Steve Scalise, the only thing that really puts a fly in the ointment of that is Steve Scalise was also just diagnosed with cancer. 
Um, so he threw his hat into the ring, but the cancer diagnosis might make some of his colleagues a little nervous to vote for him because they won't know how well that cancer treatment is going, and that might interfere with his ability to actually be present as a Speaker of the House for the foreseeable future. WMBD's T.J. Carson and Bradley University's Megan Remmel. More Week in Review coming up. Welcome back to Week in Review. I'm Will Stevenson in the WMBD Radio Newsroom. It's around this time of year that traditionally local fire departments honor their fallen. The Peoria Fire Department did just that this week with their annual Fallen Firefighters Memorial Ceremony. Participating at City Hall were Fire Battalion Chief Tom Steimling, Fire Chief Sean Solberger, and Peoria Firefighters Local 50 President Josh Martin. Today we gather to give thanks and praise to Peoria Firefighters and the Peoria Fire Department, both past and present. We hold sacred the trust bestowed upon us to ensure the safety and security of all Peoria citizens, visitors, and neighbors. We find strength every day through the unbreakable bonds we create through consistent trials and tribulations. Today we ask for continued prayer to ensure we can fulfill our oath to serve. At this time, it is my privilege to welcome the Peoria Fire Department's Fire Chief, Sean Salberger, to speak. Thank you to Mayor Rita Ali, City Manager Patrick Urich, and the Distinguished City Council for giving us the ability for being here today. Special thank you to Peoria Firefighters Local 50 President Josh Martin and our Local 50 Honor Guard. The amount of time, energy, and effort that it takes to put this together does not go without notice. We gather today to reflect and honor the brothers and sisters who came before us and lost their lives protecting the Peoria community. They lived here and they loved this community. Many of us have been at this memorial every single year, each year reflecting on the profession, the dangers, the inherent risks, all taking on with a sworn oath to protect and serve the Peoria community. Memorials can be a great time to earn a better respect and appreciation for the professional firefighter. Firefighters do not just fight fires. We protect our community in many different ways. Our paramedics provide a level of medical service that goes unmatched. We have specialty teams that protect us in hazardous materials, technical rescue, underwater rescue diving, and then added just recently drone. We also respond with PD in many different capacities, but one of which that we're very proud of being tactical medics with their SWAT team. Whether it is a medical call or a house fire or any emergency in between, the Peoria firefighters are there to protect and serve their community. To understand and embrace where we are going, we also have to have a strong understanding of where we've been. As the fire chief, I recognize my responsibility is to not only protect our community, but also protect our firefighters. This will be accomplished with adequate staffing, proper fire gear and equipment, and proper training to allow our firefighters to continue to dedicate themselves to the Peoria community. Firefighters are willing to put their own lives on the line every single day. Today we honor our fallen firefighters who gave the ultimate sacrifice. The following words, I believe, best articulate the reflections of a firefighter, and they come from poet Francis Quarles. Becoming fearless is not the point. That is impossible. It is learning how to control our fear to be free from it. That is a firefighter. The necessity of action erodes away the inherent fear and the duty of a firefighter prevails. Thank you for being here today. I now invite Peoria Firefighters Local 50 President Josh Martin to speak. 
Thanks, Chief. Thanks, Commander Steinling. Good afternoon. On behalf of Peoria Firefighters Local 50, welcome. I want to start off by thanking the Local 50 Honor Guard. Their team does amazing work, and we appreciate all that you guys do, so thank you. I would also like to thank everybody that showed up today. We appreciate your time being here. Every year, we unite here in remembrance of those who sacrificed their lives in the line of duty. As a firefighter, we all know the risks. We know there may come a day where we lay down our lives for another. The men we are here to honor today all left for work one morning and never came home. These fallen firefighters were husbands, fire, fathers, friends, and neighbors. Today, we remember them for their strength, courage, and humility. We will never be able to thank these men for paying the ultimate sacrifice, so instead, we will meet at this very location every year to remember and honor them. Thank you. At this time, I will be reading the names of those retirees who have passed since our last memorial, followed by a moment of silence in remembrance of our brothers who have helped make this department what it is today. Ronald R. Voss. Leo T. Duke. Please join me in remembering our brothers who have lost their lives in the line of duty for the Peoria Fire Department. August E. Kitchoff. Bernard J. Manning. Charles Gander. Cassius C. Wonder. Clifford B. Wiles. Chester W. Mooberry. Frank A. Fosco. Thomas F. O'Connor, Richard H. Tufel, Raymond G. Ballow, Walter M. O'Connell, Eugene C. Hester, Albert M. Jenkins, William N. Gorman, Earl W. Bigler, Vernon A. Gudat. The lives of firefighters are closely associated with the ringing of a bell. As they begin their tour of duty, it is the bell that starts their shift. Throughout the day and night, each alarm is sounded by a bell, which calls them to fires and to place their lives in jeopardy for the good of their fellow man. And when the fire is out and the alarm has ended, it is the bell that signals the completion of the call. We seek strong symbols that represent the feelings we have for our brothers who have paid the ultimate price for protecting our community. We utilize these symbols to reflect the devotion of our comrades had for their duty. The sounding of a bell, a special signal of three rings, three times each, represents the end of their duties and that they will be turning to quarters. Our comrades upon this stone have completed their tasks, their duties well done. They have given their best. For our comrades, in remembrance of their last alarm, they have gone home. Peoria firefighters honoring their own this week. More Week in Review coming up. The president of the University of Illinois is making his way around the state visiting the various U of I facilities. 
That included here in Peoria as well, where System President Timothy Colleen also took part in a roundtable discussion about developing and attracting entrepreneurs. Doug Cruitt, the new executive director of Peoria Business Incubator Distillery Labs, talks about it with WMBD's T.J. Carson. So we brought together a kind of a, a diverse group of individuals that are part of our Peoria region ecosystem to get their perspective um, and also how that ties into the resources we have through the University of Illinois system. So we had uh, three entrepreneurs uh, from different backgrounds that were able to give varying perspectives on what they've experienced thus far and what they would see as, as a way to maybe um, improve the ecosystem, but also to collaborate further with uh, the institutional side of things. Okay. Uh, what stood out to you the most about the panel today from all the answers we heard? Uh, there, there was a lot of discussion on trying to help entrepreneurs, what's good, what's bad about the area, but what stood out to you the most as the moderator? Yeah, great question. I think the, the sense of community and creating networks um, that will help improve the overall uh, not just locally, but the region. So between Champaign, Decatur, Bloomington Normal, Springfield, and Peoria together, that you know, if we're able to make those true connections um, and have action upon those connections, then we're going to all be stronger. Okay. How does that get achieved? How do you get everybody to work together and get on the same page? Yeah, well, communication. I mean, that that's the first stop is is making sure that there's an open door of communication between the different um, stakeholders. So between the entrepreneurs to to academics, to corporate, um, there has to be that communication. And creating a path for entrepreneurs and innovators to navigate that. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to come down to those discussions on how can we make sure that when, when an, an individual or an entity enters into the ecosystem, that everyone that's here knows where to point them to go. Okay. Uh, there were some concerns brought up today as well, some easier to overcome than others. What, what stood out as those concerns? What was, don't want to say most troubling, but what stood out the most? I think for, for an entrepreneur that's looking to scale or an innovator, um, probably the biggest challenge in our region is, is finding funding. So venture capitalists, uh, we heard a stat where 97.7% of venture capital is going up to Chicago. Um, and that's understandable. The great, great talent, great technologies, great companies, great workforce. Um, but we have a lot to offer down here, too, as a region. And so finding a way to, as we incubate and we accelerate these these entrepreneurs and these startups, they're going to need money at some point in time in some form or fashion. And if they need to go the venture capital route, we need local investors to to be able to to understand how to invest in these startups. It's not something that a lot of investors know how to do in this region, but through education, we think we can improve upon that. So it sounds like we can have everything here, but money talks. Exactly right. You know, once you get to a certain point, depending on what your vision is as, as a startup, you're going to need funding to scale. Um, you can bootstrap it, absolutely, and a lot of companies around here do that. Um, and that, that's fine. That's their path. But for some companies, their path doesn't require substantial investment to scale nationally or globally, perhaps. And money, money talks there. Okay. Were there any other concerns uh, other than the funding that stood out to you? And how do you address those? Um, I think maybe, you know, another concern, it comes back to that um, ability to navigate. So uh, one of our panelists mentioned simplify the networks. Like, uh, people lived their whole lives. They've been working in their basement or garage for eight years. Um, 
and they, they feel alone, but they're not alone. And so it's how do we get that word out there that people know that you have an entire network, both here in Peoria, but, but beyond in, in, in the entire region that can support you. We have connections with mentors and capital and um, things of that nature. Is it a common problem where people just don't know where to go, where to turn? Yeah, I, I would say so. You know, unless you... Unless you're tuned into the right channel, you don't really know what's what's going on, and that's that's incumbent upon us, um, not just at Distillery Labs, but all stakeholders in the region that support entrepreneurs. Is how can we make sure that we're we're speaking a consistent message of of just take that first step and reach out to someone, talk to someone, but how also can we proactively create events and programming that invite people in? So what what what's an entry point? to the ecosystem. And once you're inside, then it's a lot easier for us to navigate you to where you need to go. But um, it sounds like it's just a lot of PR as well. Yeah. It's, it's again, back to communication. It's getting that, that word out there, letting people know of, of who's here, who's here to help um, and what we have to offer in the region. So we've had the discussion today. There's a lot of help from the U of I system, all the local colleges here. How do you turn what was discussed today into action. Yeah, that's that's the that's the ultimate question with with any meeting of the minds where people come together. Talk is one thing, but how do we take action? And I, I think there there will need to be some specific actions. You know, we have design thinking of you, you start with a, a divergent idea. Let's let's come up with fifty ideas. All right, now let's boil that down to ten. Now let's boil that down to five, and then we converge as a group with the various stakeholders to decide what is that next step. But it's going to have to take continued communication discussion. And, and, and accountability, quite frankly. I mean, as as a representative of Distillery Labs, we are accountable for making sure that our entrepreneurs in the region are both served and supported. And so it's incumbent upon us to make sure that there is action. How do you convince people that this is the place to invest in, that this is an area like it's not Chicago, it's not the West or East Coast? How do you convince them that this is where they need to be? Well, I think so. If we're, we're convincing um, investors to come in and, and invest, it's, it's making sure that we have um, all, all the check, check all the boxes, you know, quality of life, affordable living, um, access to, to outdoor activities, events, because it's not just about um, investing in an entrepreneur, but that entrepreneur a lot of times has a family and, and they need to be supported as well. So thinking um, along those lines is, is kind of like you said, like back, back to PR. How can we paint the picture of Peoria and the region's a great, great place to be? And we have talented, talented and brilliant and creative innovators here that could use some of that funding to come in and locally. Doing all the action, is this a slow burn, a slow build, or are there things that can be done right away, right away, can do something now? Yeah, great question. So uh, yes to all that. So, you know, right away for us at Distillery Labs, what we want to do is to create um, an ease of access as an entry point into the ecosystem. So the way that we do that is we, we're creating new events and programming, a, a welcome wagon event that's starting next week. Later this month, we're starting a fail club where we're going to celebrate failure. So it's those tinkerers that have been in the garage and basement for eight years that are afraid to, to show their idea or business the light of day. We want them to understand that you know, success is not final, but also failure is not fatal. It's the courage to continue. So come on out and we're going to help. So it's creating those entry points. That's the immediate thing. And then the slow burn is really, um, it's a commitment of a generation for us to create this region as one of the best startup communities in the world. And that is going to take, you know, time and space to really solidify 
that if you have an idea and you're in Peoria in the central Illinois region, you will be supported. We will lift you up and we'll make you succeed. Doug Cruitt of Distillery Labs. More Week in Review coming up. Finally this week, a couple of conversations had with WMBD's Greg Batten and Dan DiOrio. First, some important funding coming to the Peoria International Airport. Gene Olson's our friend who is the head man at the Peoria Airports. The Peoria International Airport got some news yesterday. The airport authority found out that they were one of a few airports around the country to receive a grant. Hi, Gene. Good morning to you. Good morning. Tell us about this. What's what's the point of this grant, and why is it good news for us? Well, it's a grant that is used to improve air service in small communities. Uh, and uh, we had to compete with about 40 airports to uh, get funded, and I think about 20 got funded. Nice. And um, so the point for us and the good news for us is that we're going to be able to use this money to help subsidize a new route. Um, so we've, we've uh, approached the airlines, uh, and we're looking for, like, business. I say business airlines. It's really any airline. You can use the service for any purpose, um, but it's it's going to be more the smaller jet flying every day um, and trying to connect to a westbound hub. And and do we do we us. do we not have a westbound hub now? Well, we we have ways to get to the west. You can go uh, through Dallas. You can go through Chicago, but we don't have anything that's directly west. Can you give me an example of what we, what we might get? I, I know you're not guaranteeing that, but what would, what would be a possible um, destination? Well, we, we actually got letters of support from the airlines um, in support of our grant, which I think helped us compete. Oh, nice. And um, the letters of support from uh, American were for uh, Phoenix Sky Harbor service. Okay. And uh, the letter of support that we got from United was kind of more towards Denver. Um, now, we already have Mesa service, and we already have uh, Denver service on Allegiant, but those are less than daily service. They only go twice a week. So this would be daily? This would be daily, and it would also be connecting service. So if you, you know, a, lot, a large portion of our top 25 cities are people who go beyond those destinations to the west. So you always, and it's a selling point, and it's true, it's so easy to get an in and out of your airport when you're coming home from vacation, flying into here. You don't lose that, that vacation mojo than getting your car and fighting a, a bunch of people and all the traffic. So is that kind of the airline's consideration is that you are, instead of going to a major airport like O'Hare or wherever, that from their standpoint, just like a pass, just like a passenger, it's so much more easier to get in and out without delays that they're like, well, that's a good hub for us. Yeah, that helps. I mean, we have excellent facilities. We have the longest runway in the state of Illinois that's outside of the city of Chicago. Um, and so they look at that and go, oh, yeah, that's a, that's a solid airport. We can we can fly in and out of there. Um, and, and the reason the grant helps on that is that the airlines can't afford to really take a risk and so this helps us underwrite the risk for them. Oh, you can say, all right, let's give this a shot. We have some, we got backup for you. If this if this doesn't exactly. fly the way exactly as soon as we want it to and all of that. And so uh, um, is there a time frame on all of these possibilities? 
I think we have to use the grant funds within three years. <clears throat> and, um, it, you know, it's not going to happen right away. And the reason for that is that the airlines already have their schedules published, you know, at least six months out. Sure. Um, so we're going to meet with the airlines and figure out which one wants to sign up first and, and then go from there. I just think it's interesting. I, I saw a quote from you it's on our on our um news site many of our top 50 destination cities are to the west as you just said a minute ago it's interesting about that mm-hmm. i just always assumed well i'll go through dallas right i'll just go through dallas i've done it before uh but this makes it easier and of course it's nice if you're, if you're literally going to phoenix uh it makes it a little easier so we'll watch and see when this all happens but congratulations uh, I'm, I'm excited about this danny yeah thank you very much uh one quick question and i know uh uh Airports come and go. Where you can fly, come and go. It's based on a number of things. Someone just wanted to know, uh, uh, are we ever going to get Atlanta back? You know, we um, we would love to get Delta back to go to Atlanta. Um, they're, it's it's going to be a while. Um, you know, they're still – and, and all the airlines are short of aircraft and short of pilots. Uh, and so it's going to be a while before they have the capacity to be able to move back in. And then we need to document that the business traveler has come back. Right. Uh, and that's that's the big thing that Delta has told us before. So I, I see it happening, but it's going to be a while, a number of years. All righty, sir. We're going to let you go. Have a great day. That's Gene Olson. He's the director of airports out there at the Peoria International Airport. All right, winter's coming. You can feel it in the air. We're getting colder. We're worried about our bills. Our friend Angie O works at Ameren. How's that work? How, how do you, how, uh, Angie, first of all, let's talk about smart thermostats. How does that mm-hmm. work? What is, what is a smart thermostat? Absolutely. So a smart thermostat is real similar to programmable thermostats like the ones I grew up with. But what's different is this one can connect to Wi-Fi and it has an app, which means you can be sitting in your house or anywhere else and adjust the temperature from your phone. So more sitting, which I love. And you don't have to be that smart or technologically savvy to use it. I am living proof. <laughs> yeah. So, Michael, you're probably on my level. So, Angie. Uh, hey, I, don't throw him out there like that. <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> so, Angie, w- from a saving standpoint, and I've always wondered this, um, by keeping your home low during the day, let's say in winter, and then bumping it up, um, where is, because I always thought, is it better just to keep it steady or do you really save by dropping the temperature and then on your way home start to crank it back up? Oh, you're giving me the opportunity to be a myth buster. So we have a lot of customers, including myself before I worked in energy, who thought, you know, it's going to have to work harder to bring back up that heat. But that's not true. Uh, if you lower it during the day, you are going to save money. You just think about if that was sitting at 72 versus 55, the energy it takes to reheat it is nothing compared to heating it all day. And I'd say for someone like me who will disappear on the road sure. uh, for two or three days at a time, if you can drop it from 72 to 55 for three days, yes, you will spend some energy getting it back up to 72, but there's a lot of savings and extra money in your pocket. Who doesn't like that? Mm-hmm. Tell me about, uh, Michael, the state of Illinois. Uh, uh, um, certainly we want to take care of our citizens. Obviously we want to take care of folks who are ser- seriously on a limited budget, and, and these bills can sometimes really uh, hurt those kind of folks. But what is the what is the your just from you standpoint from your uh, obligation to that? Because I don't know that really the state has an obligation to it. So why why do it? What's the motivation? 
Well, I would say in the treasurer's office, we're always looking to save people the state money, whether it be helping to save for college, helping to save for their retirement, whether it's helping to create jobs in the state. But Benjamin Franklin said the penny saved is a penny earned. And these smart thermostats will help them save a lot of pennies, earn a lot. Uh, extra spending money in their pockets can be spent at a local business or maybe taking a family out for a restaurant. That helps our uh, economy. Sure. But also, this is a result of legislation passed by the state uh, wanting to save, save money for our citizens and also do something that's good for the environment. You know, and I, I don't know if this is off topic for another day, but it kind of fits in. Smart thermostats. One of the things that can help across the board, especially lower, middle to lower income people. But to me, the other one is somehow have government giving grants to middle and lower income people for insulation. We look at all these older homes that people are living in. If you insulate those homes, you know how much money they'd save? There is a, there's a lot we can do. These smart thermostats can save. You know, heating and cooling is about half of your power bills, and these smart thermostats can help. Uh, I've been calculated to help you save about 10 to 12 percent on your power bills. But there are other things we can do to save even more. But this is a easy step that's available right now, but it does, it's not around forever. All right, okay. Angie, Angie, give us the details of how a family uh, might be able to get a no-cost smart thermostat. What do we do? Well, gosh, I'd love to. So you can go to AmarinIllinoisSavings.com slash save now between now and November 30th, and it gets shipped directly to you. There is absolutely no cost. No shipping, no taxes. We really want this to be accessible to everyone. And I also want to make sure I'm, I uh, echo what you said, Dan, that insulation is also an amazing next step. Uh, you can also get that from our website. We have a home efficiency program you can apply for. I always compare it to uh, why wear a mesh jacket when you can wear something that actually insulates and protects you. And the house is the same thing. If you're heating a house where all of those holes are closed up, it's going to work much, much better for you. So. I completely agree that's that's the second step on your energy journey. I do want to say you haven't seen me in a mesh jacket, so I think it's awesome when I wear one. So, Angie. Well, when you get a smart thermostat, you'll save enough money that we can go get you a mesh jacket. Okay. All right. Thank you. <laughs> Angie, Michael, we got to roll. We got to roll. Uh, thank you again. Uh, check out uh, the Ameren opportunity and uh, through the state of Illinois as well of getting your home one of these smart thermostats and save money. It's gonna Winter's coming. Well, the cold's coming this weekend, actually. Nice talking to you both. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you very much. That does it for this edition of Week in Review. Join us at this time next week on this Midwest Communications Station for another recap of some of the biggest issues and events in central Illinois. You don't have to wait for Week in Review to get the lowdown on what's happening in central Illinois. For instant news 24-7, follow us at 1470 WMBD on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and at WMBDRadio.com. Or find the Week in Review podcast at WMBDRadio.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Will Stevenson, WMBD Radio News.